Zephaniah. Getting close to the end here of the Old Testament. Zephaniah chapter 3, last chapter, verses 14 and 15. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we need you to take your word and breathe life into it and to enlighten our hearts with your word. God, we are dependent upon you to do a work today in the preaching of your word. So I pray for your fresh filling, your anointing to preach your word. I pray for hearts that would receive your word and that your word would go forth and planted, be planted in the hearts and bear fruit for your glory. So I pray that you would do this, Lord, now during this time. I pray this in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen. I don't know if you know this, but during the second service, we have an adult Sunday school class. And uh, last week, I was blessed to be able to teach that class. And in that class, I had a question, and I told them I was going to ask it today in this service. And uh, here it is. And I want your initial, think about your initial response to this question. As God thinks of you right now, what is the look on his face? As God thinks of you right now. What is the look on his face? Why do you have that view? You see, we so many times feel that there's not a reason that God would take pleasure in me. We know our sinfulness. We know our unfaithfulness. And because we know those things, we look at the Lord and we say, this is how he's probably looking, his face looks when he thinks of me. Well, the message in Zephaniah is that the Lord not only forgives you as a believer, he not only accepts you as a believer, but here is even greater news. He absolutely delights over you. So when you thought of that, if you thought of anything other than the Lord delighting over you, you don't understand your God and you don't understand your salvation. So let's take a look at this wonderful book called Zephaniah. Uh, this is the only time in the prophetic books that the author actually traces his genealogy. It's in Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 1. And Zephaniah means hidden of the Lord. And what we find in this genealogy is that Zephaniah had a royal lineage. He was the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. He had royal blood in his veins. And this particular book 
was written somewhere between 630 and 625 or 610 B.C. during King Josiah's reign. You remember King Josiah? He's the one who found the law and presented it to the people and said, we're, you know, we're repenting and we want to walk according to the law. And just uh, he was the king who was the king at, I think, eight years old. And uh, a lot of good things. Well, probably the uh, reforms that Josiah brought might have been tied into Zephaniah and his prophecy here. So there's a, a, a parallel. There's a, a, a lines that run close together here. We're not sure how they crossed, but there's a lot of scholars that believe that Zephaniah had a strong influence on uh, Josiah, King Josiah, and some say that he could have been possibly related to him some way. We don't know for sure. But what happened was, and we know this from Scripture, that uh, King Josiah said, hey, uh, this is the way that we need to walk. He called all Israel to repentance, and Israel went through the motions, but they really didn't repent. And so now we're quite a few years later. uh, People have not sought after God, did not follow God. So here comes Zephaniah with this prophecy and a call to repentance because the day of the Lord is coming near. That's what he's telling the people. Repent. The day of the Lord, uh, there's no Old Testament book that refers to it more than Zephaniah. The day of the Lord is a reference to both Judah's impending judgment. So there was something coming where God was going to judge Judah. And you remember, uh, God had already judged the nation of Israel. Israel split. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom was Israel. The southern kingdom was Judah. The northern kingdom had been taken over, I think, by the Assyrians uh, 80 years before this. And now uh, Zephaniah is saying, you know what, there's a, a judgment coming against you, Judah, because you didn't repent. You played the game. You know, there was a combination of worshiping idols even in the Lord's temple. It was just a mess. But the day of the Lord refers to not only a historical judgment that was going to come on the nation of Judah, but also the final judgment at the end of time. So this is a this is a prophetic word for that moment, Judah, but it was a bigger picture of the end time, something in our future beyond us. Take a look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 1, 2 through 4, 14 through 18. I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away man and beast. I will sweep away the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and the rubble with the wicked. I will cut off mankind from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will stretch out my hand against Judah. So we can see... There's a a double-edged sword here. He's talking about Judah, but also the end of the world, the end of days. And in verse 14, The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. 15a, a day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom. 17a, I will bring distress on mankind so that they shall walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Verse 18, neither their silver nor their gold shall be able to deliver them on the day of the wrath of the Lord. 
in the fire of his jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. For a full and sudden end he will make of all the inhabitants of the earth. Boy, that makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? But that's God's word. That's God's word. It says that this day of the Lord is near. That's what he's saying. Remember, he's speaking to the inhabitants at that time of of Judah, Jerusalem. And uh, he's saying it's near. There's judgment for them. But remember, in New Testament, it talks about how a day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day to the Lord. And so we look at this and we go, he's also telling us the day of the Lord is near. It's near. And he's talking about why that's coming. It's going to be a time of wrath as judgment on sin. And it is going to be a total destruction of the earth. Total destruction. Worse than the flood. That's why I highlighted he's going to sweep away the fish of the sea. In the flood, that didn't happen, did it? But now, the coming day of the Lord. And the call is that, you know what? This judgment is coming. And it's going to be complete. And God will not look the other way. There is a time when, when the wickedness of man has gone so far that God will no longer look the other way. And what will happen is judgment will come. And he doesn't give the details here how it will happen, but he does talk about the consequences. You can see the consequences here. And he says this, God does, because he's prophesying through this prophet Zephaniah. He's saying this is what will happen. So we're sure of it. This is what's going to happen, the day of the Lord. Referred to over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament. This is what will happen. And this is an extension of God's grace. Because he's warning the people of Judah. He's warning us today. He's saying, this is going to come. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ, he's calling us to repent now. Take a look at chapter 2. In Zephaniah, verses 1 through 3. Gather together, yes, gather, O shameless nation, before the decree takes effect, before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you a burning, the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. Seek the Lord, all you humble of the land, who do, who do His just commands. Seek righteousness, seek humility, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the anger of the Lord. Isn't it interesting that Zephaniah's name means hidden of the Lord? And here in verse 3, perhaps you may be hidden on the day of the Lord. We see that God is going to watch over His people in this time. They'll be hidden in Him. He will sustain their faith. That's a promise that we can be assured of if God, if this day of the Lord happens during our lifetime. And it may. You look at the wickedness in the world and the evil in the world, it's not that we should walk in fear. That's why God pr- pronounced this way back when in the time of, of Josiah to give those who were believers in, in, in God and for us today as Christians 
that God will take care. God is in charge. God is sovereign, not this world. I was, I was preparing this message yesterday, and as I was, I was, I was reviewing, and I came to this part, and it was lightning, and it was thundering, and I was just thinking, you know, we, God, we just, man thinks we're so tough. Man thinks we're in control of everything, and we can't stop the thunder. We can't stop the rain. God, you are sovereign over all things, and you will bring what you will bring because you have a plan to glorify your name. And I sat there and I thought about this and I thought, and he loves us enough to give us a warning and says, hey, this is coming, but I want you to know, if you don't know me, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's saying repent before the day of the Lord happens. It's coming. Repent. Turn from your wicked ways. You're separated from God. It says very clearly in the Word of God that all of sin falls short of the glory of God. We're separated from God because we're sinners. And there's no hope for us in our own strength. You know, it's not about good works outweighing the bad because you still have your sin that has to be paid for. And Jesus came and died on the cross. Lived that sinless life for us to meet the requirements of the law so that all who would repent and receive the gift of salvation, that Christ would be punished for their sins because God is just. And God was the one who provided His precious Son, so He's the justifier as well. He says, repent. The day of the Lord is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. And, and the more we see the wickedness in this world, we see it's a day closer. I always, I always, I know if you've come to this church for a while, you've heard me say this hundreds of times maybe, but it always amazed me to think about Jesus coming to the earth for the very first time and people hanging out together and they go, hey, you know what? Uh, you know that Messiah we've been waiting for? I think he's here. Can you imagine the conversations around that? Come on, man. No, really. There's this guy named Jesus. And they go, nah, the Messiah we know about. And know, Jesus? I know Jesus. He's the carpenter's kid, right? You know, it would have been so hard to believe that Jesus came the first time in your lifetime, wouldn't it have? Why would it be hard for us to believe that he's going to come during our lifetime the second time? He's not coming to an empty planet. It's going to be filled. And when he comes, he will bring judgment. But he talks about here that he will hide his people. He will sustain our faith. We will not walk in fear. And though all chaos breaks around us, we are in our Lord. And we know that nothing can steal our eternal salvation, that God will protect us. And that's what he's saying here. Judgment is coming. Repent if you don't know me. If you do know me, then know that I will protect you. I will take care of you. I will hide you. And he is able to do that. What an incredible, incredible story this is. He lays out the gospel so clearly. But what we need to know is this. God doesn't delight in judgment. God, God's heart delights in mercy. That's our God. God's heart delights in mercy. And what we see is this. There's this redemptive pattern that starts in the garden and goes all the way to Revelation, to the day of the Lord. And that redemptive pattern is this, that God sets His love on His people. He makes a choice. He says, these are my people. 
not from nothing that they have done, I've just decided to set my love upon them. And what happens? They rebel and they sin against him. Right? So what does God do? Well, he disciplines them because he loves them. And then what does he do? He extends mercy and he extends hope and he extends forgiveness and restoration. That is the redemptive pattern from, from the garden all the way to Revelation. Over and over again we see it played out. We see it played out here in Zephaniah. Take a look at the outline of this book. Chapter 1. God's determination to execute judgment on Jerusalem due to sin. He said, here's what you're, you're my people. I've chosen you, but you continue to sin. You continue to reject me. And so I've got to, because I love you, I'm going to discipline you. I'm bringing judgment. It's coming. So God has set his heart on a people. Those people have, have embraced rebellion and sin. And so God says, you know what? I'm going to discipline you. And then we see in chapter 2, 1 through 3, Judah is called to repent. There's a call to repentance. Turn from your wicked ways. And then in chapter 2, 4 through 15, doom of the Gentile nations. He's saying, now this is how it all ends. It goes on in chapter 3, 1 through 7. Woe is pronounced on Jerusalem. You're not repented, so judgment is coming. And then finally, chapters 3, 8 through 12, the message of comfort and hope to the faithful remnant. You see the pattern of, of, of redemption here in the book of Zephaniah? Throughout Scripture, it just keeps playing out over and over and over again. It's amazing to see what happens. And what we see in this book of Zephaniah is that the judgment that God is proclaiming that is going to come on the earth is followed by promises to bless all nations. Followed by a promise. Take a look. God's Word. Zephaniah 3, so we're just continuing right through the book, 3 verses 8 through 13, and then uh, Luke 8b, for in the fire of my jealousy all the earth shall be consumed, for at that time okay, I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, the daughter, the daughter of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall, not do, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down. You think of Psalm 23, don't you right there? And none shall make them afraid. None shall make them afraid. He's talking about here a global spiritual awakening. Because what he's doing is he's saying up in verse 9, I will change the speech of people to a pure speech. What happens when that occurs? Well, we find that answer right here in Luke chapter 6, 45. The good person out of the treasure of his heart produces good, 
And the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. God is changing the hearts of people is what it's saying here. And it's reflected by how they're speaking. It's reflected by different desires. It's what God does in us when by God's grace we receive the gift of salvation. And it says in the Word of God that He takes this heart of stone out and puts a heart of flesh in. It's a miracle that happens. And what he's talking about here is in this end times, there's going to be a mighty revival that's going to happen. And God is going to work in people's hearts. He's going to take that heart of stone out. And he's going to put a heart of flesh in, a heart that desires God. And it's going to be reflected in the way that they speak. Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So he's talking about in these end times a great revival that will happen. A great salvation among the lost. He's also talking about a purging and a purifying of the nation of Israel primarily when he talks about, you know, I will remove from your midst the proudly exalted ones and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. So there's a purification. I think that when I look at this, I see how, how uh, you know, if, if somebody is, is playing a game with God and uh, God's just going to kind of separate the, the sheep from the goats and you know, in the church it talks about the fact that there can be wolves in sheep's clothing. Well, there won't be at the end. There won't be at the end. There's going to be a purification that comes that God is going to do. He's going to remove the proud and leave the humble. And so God is going to be doing a work in these end times. He's going to be bringing a revival. He's going to be purifying His church. It's going to be an exciting time, not a fearful time. Not for a believer at least. And what we see in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 is these are primarily messianic prophecies that await Jesus' second coming for their fulfillment. That's really what we see in verses 9 through 20. It's talking about a Messiah that's coming. This is where we find Christ in the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah reveals this, that in these last days, when it's all kind of culminating, everything's done, and now we're standing before the Lord, there's going to be a celebration. And that celebration includes God's people singing praises to Him. Look at this, the rest of this chapter, chapter 3. Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17. Sing aloud. That word literally means shout for joy. Okay? O daughter of Zion, shout. The, the, the word there means split the ears. Okay? So it's saying, shout aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel, rejoice. That word means jump for joy. Okay? And exalt. Be glad with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away. That word means to turn off. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. Isn't that neat? Just think about it. Turn off the judgments against you. Cast them away. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. That word midst means the nearest part, the center. You shall never again fear evil. It means not seeing. 
You will never again fear evil. You can see how this is a picture of heaven and the, and the millennial kingdom. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord, your God, is in your midst. Again, the nearest part, the center. A mighty one who will save. He will quiet. I never saw this before. He will quiet. The root word means to engrave. To hold peace. He will quiet you by His love. And I thought of this verse in Isaiah. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. And that word engraved means appoint, decree. God's chosen people. He says, I've engraved you on my hand. He says, I, am, I, I, have, I will quiet you by my love. That's a picture of the glory of Jesus Christ. It's a picture of God's people exalting over Him, rejoicing over Him, delighting in Him. Why? Why? Well, it says here why. They rejoice because Jesus has saved them eternally from sin, from evil, from Satan, from hell, from the Father's wrath. He's, he's delighting in that. They're delighting in they're saying, we are saved. He is mighty to save is the song we sing. Mighty to save. And, he, and you see God's people, I mean, look at what we're doing. Shouting for joy, splitting the ears. It's a jumping for joy. Why? We are saved by God's grace, by God's mercy. We're delighting in Jesus is what's happening here. We are forever in God's glorious, beautiful presence. No one can take that away. We are eternally free from the presence of evil and sin. That's why we will never again fear evil. Because there's nothing to fear. It's not there. And you see God's people delighting over God. They're delighting over who He is, what He has done for them through the the cross. There is no more fear. And they are resting in Jesus' continual, unchanging love. And they're doing it without shame, without guilt, and without worry. That's what you see here. You see a people redeemed by the living God that understand the depth of the grace of God and they're delighting in all of who God is. And they're not walking in fear. They're not walking in worry. They're not walking in anxiety in any way, shape, or form. You see, verses 9 through 20 in Zephaniah chapter 3 express the greatness and the strength and the completeness of Jesus' unconditional love for all his people. And that's not only in the future, that's for today too. Hear that? That's for today too. You see, Jesus desires to take away the shame that causes you to doubt. That God not only forgives you, that God not only accepts you, but that God actually delights in you. He wants to take that away. So when I ask the question, your first response is, He delights in me. Take a look at God's Word. Zephaniah 3, 7. We're just continuing on. Continuing on. 
The Lord your God is in your midst, the nearest part, the center, a mighty one to save. He will rejoice. Look at this. Be cheerful, glad over you with gladness. Glee is that word there. He will quiet. Root word to engrave or hold peace. You buy his love. He will exalt. Look at what this word means. This word is even more intense. To dance, to skip, to leap, to spin around under violent emotion, emotion, usually joy is what it means. That's God. That's God. (coughs) Over you, with loud singing, shout of joy. That's our God. That's our God. Delighting over us. Wow. Okay, I just got a question. Again, going through this message. What does it sound like when God sings? Right? What is that like? I mean, His voice is like thunder in the Old Testament, right? God speaks and the mountain shakes. I don't have any clue what it must be like for the Creator who spoke everything out of nothing, who spoke everything out of nothing. And he is singing his delight. What I'm going to be there. And someday I'll be able to tell you, but right now I have no clue. Look at Jeremiah 32, 41. I will rejoice in doing them good. This is what God's saying about you. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. Philippians 1, 6. I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, the day of the Lord. He'll complete it all. He'll hold you. He is the one who grants us the faith to believe. He is the one who keeps us in himself. He is the one who will fulfill all the promises he has made. It is about God and his strength, not ours. It's about his promises, not our performance. That's what it's about. And then we go to Isaiah 62, 5b. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. That's what the Word of God says about you. That's what it says that God is doing. It's interesting because it begins with the people of God singing praises to God. And this verse ends with God singing praises over His people. You see, because God delights in His name and He delights in you when you take refuge in His name, when you trust in Him, when you trust in His grace and His mercy and you revere Him and respect Him. He delights in that. You see, God delights in us because we delight in Him. You see the strong language that's here? We miss that. There's strong language in here, and there's also redundancy in the expression of joy. It says it twice. He will rejoice over you. He will exalt over you. It's like a double whammy. It's like a double emphasis. Whenever something in Scripture is like that, it's a, it, it, it increases in the intensity. So what this is showing is it's just showing how greatly delighted the Lord is in His chosen people, those He has redeemed and called His people. God is delighting in that. They delight in His name. He delights in them.
Some people think, well, doesn't this belittle God? He's delighting over his redeemed. And I say, no, it does not. It does not belittle God for him to rejoice over us, just like it does not belittle Michelangelo to rejoice over the work that he had put on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. You see, God is delighting in his work. He's delighting in the greatness of the salvation that he's provided. He looks upon the redeemed who had no hope like you and I, who did not deserve the salvation that he would give. And he is delighting to see them delight in him. That's our God. He is beholding his own handiwork in the redeemed, and he rejoices. That's our God. You see, we underestimate the joy that God has in Christians, and we too often think that he is annoyed or angry with us. But Scripture says this, like the groom rejoices over the bride, so God rejoices over us. My son Sam is getting married in three weeks to that sweet lady right next to him, Michaela. Sam is rejoicing over his bride. That's how God is with us. He rejoices over us. He's delighted. We're his bride. That's what it says here in Isaiah. He rejoices over us because of the work that he has done. He rejoices. And he's able to do that because, you see, God sees us through the lens of the cross. He sees us as who we are in Jesus, all of Christ's perfections. And he sees us through that lens, not the lens of our performance. And the problem with the question that I started with was you immediately saw yourself through the lens of performance. That's what you did. And you said, well, God's probably, well, you know, at best. And you see, that's not how God views you. He sees you through the lens of the cross, redeemed, the righteousness of Christ as though clothed with his righteousness, covered by the blood of the Lamb. That's how God sees you. And he delights in you because of that. He sees you through the lens of the cross and all we are in Jesus. You see, that's why the Lord not only forgives and accepts us, but he delights in us. That's what it's saying. Because of who Christ is, what God has done, we are trophies of his grace. Amen? Trophies of God's grace. So when he delights, he delights in himself and all his great work. As he takes somebody as shabby as Dan Corvillian and use him. To preach his precious word. Glory to God. So brothers and sisters. Be dumbfounded. Be dumbfounded. That God is rejoicing over you. Be dumbfounded at that. That is amazing to me. Be dumbfounded. 
that he rejoices over us with his whole heart and his whole soul. It's not a, oh, guy have to. You know, my son's birthday is today, my son Andrew. You know, and you, okay, so it's Andrew's birthday, so we have to rejoice Andrew, right? Is that, is that, you know, it's his birthday, right? That's not the kind of rejoicing God has. And that's not the kind of rejoicing we have, you know what I'm saying. But, you know, it's somebody's birthday, so you you got to do a special party thing, right? But, you see, that's not how God is rejoicing. It is out of the, the, the overflow of his heart. He sees the work of his hands. He delights in us, delighting in him. So be dumbfounded. Be amazed at that. And cause that to produce fruit in your life. You see, that was the intent of God sharing this with the people back then. And his intent to share it with us today is that we would be encouraged. That we would see that he holds the ends. That he is sovereign. And we see that. And we see how he delights over us because of who we are in Christ and the work of his hands, trophies of his grace. And respond. Respond. Respond with continual thanks and praise to a God who is so good to us and who is so faithful to us and has this unfathomable love for us that is unconditional and based on the cross and on God's grace and not your performance. I am so glad for that. How about you? Let's pray. Lord, we stand in awe of you today and we worship you this morning that you are the God of all creation, the creator seated in the highest place. And you have redeemed a people for yourself. So many of them in this room today. And God, you look at us through the lens of the cross, which is amazing. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. God, that we would stand in awe of you. And we would see that you're not upset and angry with us. You delight in us. Yes, you're conscious of our sin and you're going to discipline us, but you delight in your people. And God, would you do a work in our hearts that with this understanding, you would cause in us from a deeper, more intimate level, a breaking forth of worship and thanksgiving to you as just a testimony again of your greatness and your goodness and your love. Do this, God, for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand. Now you get a chance to apply, right, at the end here, to worship our great God. And as we stand.